Well, good morning again. I want to welcome all of you to In Town Church and so glad to have the family here this morning uh, for the baptism. Welcome to you and welcome to anyone else who's visiting with us this morning. I'd love to meet you after the service if time permits. We are winding down an extended study of the Gospel of Luke and it's working out to where it's going to end basically at the time that we come to Easter. We're coming down to Jesus' last few days on earth. And as we wrap up Easter, we're coming, or wrapping up Lent, we're coming to Easter, to his resurrection. But this morning, we're looking at his judgment and his standing before the crowds and their judgment of him. And this is our gospel reading. This is Luke, out of Luke 23. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. For what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priest and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, "'You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion.' I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them, Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished, have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant them their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would bless the reading, the preaching of your word. We need to hear from you. Wherever we are this morning, whether we're coming from a place of deep dejection, spiritual um, poverty, whether we're coming from a place of doubt and skepticism, whether we're just bored with life, or whether we have been following you faithfully for many years, we all need to see Jesus again. Would you give us an impression of the gospel? Give us an impression of just what links you went to to rescue us. Let us be rescued again this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Jesus, as we have seen over and over through this study, has run afoul of the religious leaders, and they want to put him to death, something that 
has unfortunately been very frequent in church history for people that have been considered heretics. And Jesus, to the religious authorities, was certainly this. He was a heretic. But they lived in Roman-occupied Palestine, and only the civil authorities had the power of capital punishment. And in Jerusalem, the power rested in the person of Pontius Pilate. Now, Pilate doesn't care anything about a Jewish heresy. So Jesus' opponents can't appeal to that. They have to figure out another way to get Pilate to agree to this, to get him to care about this heretic Jesus. And what they do is they come to him and say, Pilate, Jesus is setting himself up as king, and he doesn't want to, his people to obey you, Mr. Pilate. In fact, he wants them not to pay taxes. The obedience of the occupied people is something that was very important to the Roman Empire and something very important to Pilate. And he had put down more than his share of riots and rebellions. And so this, they reasoned, should get his attention. Now, the tragedy of this, the irony of this, is that they didn't want to obey Mr. Pilate either. They certainly didn't want to pay his tribute, his taxes, But this is power politics. This is power politics. And so they're going to say whatever it takes to keep themselves in power, even if it means claiming that Jesus is saying that is opposing something that they oppose and using that as an instrument to get him put to death. For them, an enemy of their enemy is their friend. Now, first, Jesus appears before Pilate who's the Roman governor, and then he appears before Herod, who is the Jewish king, the Jewish political leader. And both appraise him, both assess him, and though their approaches look different at first glance, they really share the same foundational basis, power politics. We're going to look back last week. We looked at Pilate, and I want to revisit that just for a moment to bring out a few uh, threads that I think tie Pilate and Herod together. Pilate asks him whether he is king of the Jews, and Jesus answers, you have said so. But that's not exactly what he says, and you can't just translate what he says in English as it is because it wouldn't make any sense. What he says in answer to, are you the king of the Jews, is just two words, you say. And so you understand why the translators have taken some liberty to try and communicate what it is that Jesus is actually conveying. He says, you say, not in the way, in a snarky way, well, that's what you say, nor does he say outright, it's as you say. He gives a rather ambiguous answer. It's not a yes, and it's not a no, but it's not really a fair question that Pilate is asking him, and a direct answer of yes or no will therefore not be accurate. It's kind of like asking someone, have you stopped beating your dog? You can't just say yes or no. You have to qualify. Well, no, I haven't stopped beating my dog. I never did, that sort of thing. Jesus is trying to convey something with nuance, and he can't just say yes or no. What Pilate is wanting to know is if Jesus is a political threat, if Jesus is a danger to his power. He doesn't care about Jewish heresy. What he wants to know is if Jesus is going to lead a rebellion against him, if he's going to threaten his power. But he won't answer it. Jesus won't answer it in a straightforward way because, of course, he is a political threat, but not in the way that Pilate would recognize and certainly not in a way that he would 
respect? The answer, of course, is yes. He is king of the Jews, but not only the Jews. He's king of the whole world. What Pilate is wanting to know is, is he a threat to my power? And in the Gospel of John, we see it uh, answered a little bit different way. Are you a king? And Jesus says, I bear witness to the truth. And Pilate says, what is truth? What is truth? You're talking about persuasion, Jesus. I can make people do stuff. I have the power of the sword. Truth. What kind of power is that? Truth. I can kill people. Jesus is not leading a political rebellion, so Pilate doesn't see him as a threat, and so he's dismissive. He doesn't even want to give in to these uh, religious leaders' concerns and demands that they crucify him because that would give Jesus too much credit. According to Pilate, he's just a country bumpkin. He's just this strange, eccentric rabbi. Crucifixion is what we do to people who threaten us. Crucifixion is what we do to put down rebellions. This man is not leading a rebellion. So no, I'm not going to crucify him. He sends him first to Herod and says, he's your problem, Herod. Now what does Herod do? Herod is interested in power too, but it comes out a little bit differently. It says he's been wanting to see him, not to determine whether he's truly the Messiah, not to determine whether he should repent and follow Jesus. He simply wants to see some of Jesus' tricks. He wants to see Jesus do some miraculous signs, signs of power. Herod is interested in power just like Pilate is. He wants to see a sign. He wants to see a miracle. He wants to see Jesus do some of his parlor tricks. He's intrigued, but he's assessing Jesus just like Pilate is. I've been waiting to meet you, Jesus. Now, let me see if you can deliver the goods. Let me see if what people are saying about you is true so that I can know if I need to respect you or not. That's Herod's interest. It's, the tactics are different than Pilate, but his interests are the same. Is he a threat to my power? Is he as powerful as people say? Both people are dealing in power politics and trying to assess Jesus on the only terms they know how to. Human power human control, human authority. They are both asking questions of power. Pilate, political questions. Herod, quasi-religious questions. But when the political leaders see that he doesn't actually pose them an immediate threat, at least not on their terms, they mock him. They hold him in contempt. They're dismissive of him. He's a joke to them. Human politics and power is determined by force. It moves forward by coercion. It moves forward by control. Do you remember a few weeks ago when we looked at his arrest? Jesus leads, Judas leads this large crowd to where Jesus is praying, and they come with clubs and with swords to arrest him. Jesus, who has never lifted a finger against anyone, has preached nonviolence They come with clubs and swords to arrest him. And Matthew says that one of his followers draws a sword and cuts off the ear, as Steve told us about earlier. And what does Jesus say? Put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my Father 
and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Do you think I don't have the power to protect myself? Do you think I need you drawing your sword to protect me? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you didn't arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. They're scared out of their wits because they're thinking just like Pilate and just like Herod. They're thinking they're powerless in human terms, and so they flee and they scatter. Jesus' view of power is so utterly different than the human view of power, than Pilate's view of power, than Herod, than even his disciples at that point. They haven't caught on that Jesus' view of power is to voluntarily give yourself up, to save others rather than yourself, to voluntarily become weak, That's Jesus' view of power, and that's revolutionary power. That's rebellious power, but not in the sense that Pilate or Herod would be threatened by it. The king who can command legions, the king who could snap his fingers and be rid of all of those with clubs and swords, sets down his earthly power. He gives himself up. He lays down his life. We see Jesus, first of all, Jesus and power politics, but we need to see Jesus and the polarized crowds. Just five days ago in this narrative, the crowds welcomed Jesus in Jerusalem, shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And now, five days later, crucify him, crucify him. We watch occasionally in our household American Idol, and one, one of the funniest things about it that I get a kick out of, is watching the crowds respond to the judges. And when one performer comes up and the the judge gives them a good review, the crowd cheers. They love this judge. And then the very next contestant, the judge says, "Eh, I'm not so sure if that was your best performance. Boo! And they boo him. They go from cheering to boos in an instant. And that's what Jesus is experiencing. He came into Jerusalem. Everyone is cheering him. They've come out to welcome him as an arriving king. And now, not only booing him, but crucifying him. They're out for blood. The crowds have been on his side for as long as we've been reading. And the religious leaders have therefore been threatened because Jesus was so popular And he was saying everything to contradict their whole approach to spirituality, their whole approach to temple worship. But something's happened. Given the choice of Jesus, the rabbi, the religious teacher, the healer, or Barabbas, the murderer, the insurrectionist, the one who wants to overthrow the Romans by force, given those choices, the one who says, let's lay down our arms Let's lead a rebellion in a very different way. Let's lead a rebellion of truth. Given the choice of that over a rebellion with clubs and swords and sticks and power, the crowd says, give us Barabbas. The choice becomes very clear. And Luke is inviting you and I into this choice. He's inviting us to look 
at the one who represents this narrow personal hope, this narrow agenda. In the case of the crowd, it's a a perverted sort of nationalism. But in ours, it could be. In ours, how we seek to promote our own personal hope, our own narrow agenda, the way we use power, it could be in how we use our wealth. It could be in how we use authority over our children in our household. It could be how you use your institutional level at work, that you outrank someone and you use that as power over them. It could be that you're pretty smart and you use your intellect in an argument to win. It could be a secret that you hold and how you choose to use that secret. Do you use it to gain power and manipulate other people or do you hold it to yourself in order to protect someone else? Barabbas appeals to our basic instinct to protect our own interests, to win, to wield power for our own agenda and what we want to see happen. And our heroes are often the Barabbases of the world who take matters into their own hands, who get things done, who do something, who dispatch the enemy by brute force, force, who use systems to get what they want. On May 20th of last year, an 18-year-old named Takunda Mavima was driving home drunk from a party when he lost control and crashed his car into an off-ramp near Grand Rapids, Michigan. And riding in the car were 17-year-old Tim C. and 15-year-old Krista Howell. Both were killed in the accident, but Takunda lived on. He pleaded guilty to all the charges and was sentenced. And despite their unimaginable grief and anger, the sister and the father of the victim, Tim C., gave a moving address to the court on behalf of Mavima, urging the judge to give him as light a sentence as possible. The father said, I'm begging you to let Takunda Mavima make something of himself in the real world. Don't send him to prison where he'll get hard and bitter That boy has learned his lesson a thousand times over, and he'll never make the same mistake again. And when the hearing ended, the victim's family made their way across the courtroom and embraced him and consoled him and cried with him and publicly forgave him. They chose not to use the system that was in front of them to exploit punishment from this boy They didn't choose to use this system in order to get their anger out, but instead foregoed, forewent, whatever, that access and said, I forgive you. Barabbas takes up the sword. He takes action. Who is Jesus? Who is he, this teacher? How is he going to get us out of this mess? He's calling him the Messiah, the King of the Jews, and it makes us look silly. It's a joke. Release to us the revolutionary. Release to us Barabbas. He has power. He knows what's going on. Give us Barabbas. He's the one who can really get things done. And we see hosannas go to cries of crucify. We love you, Jesus. Come and rescue us. Crucify him in the span of Of less than a week. We see Jesus and power politics 
Jesus and polarized crowds, and then finally Jesus and death row pardons. We have to choose between Barabbas and Jesus. We have to say either Hosanna or crucify him. We have the same choice the crowds have this morning. Do we say, Hosanna, rescue me, save me, or do we say, crucify him, I'm done with you, you're a joke? Jesus doesn't come to lead a political rebellion or revolution in any way similar to how we would conceive of it. He could have come to Jerusalem and busted some heads, and he would have been absolutely justified in doing it, but that's not his way because he doesn't play by the rules of power politics. He doesn't come to take up power, but to give up power. He doesn't come to take control by coercion, but to give up all of the forms of coercion that he could use. He doesn't take up the literal sword, but friends, if you encounter him fully, there's indeed a sword. There's indeed pain. There's indeed a cost. His sword comes down upon us and cuts us in two. It comes down on our attitude towards class. It comes down on our attitude towards race, towards our achievements, towards our politics, towards our rights, towards our spiritual goodness. His sword comes down on all of those and the way that we would use them to further our own interests rather than the interest of others. And if you encounter Jesus, you begin to reassess. How do I think about race? How do I think about class? How do I think about politics? And if you're coming repeatedly to Jesus and you never put those in the dock, you never question them, then likely you're not really meeting Jesus. He doesn't come simply to bring you personal peace and to get you to heaven. His kingship is over all the world, and his redemption is over all the world, and he claims authority over every area of your life. And he brings a sword to divide all the ways that you have used the resources in your life to get what you want and to keep him at bay. And he cuts those things out. And so absolutely, it's painful. Absolutely, it hurts. But it's not a literal sword. It's not a sword that comes in the name of power and coercion. It's persuasion. And Jesus says by his own dying, by his own receiving of the sword, to come and bow to him. Barabbas goes free. Jesus goes to death. The one who seeks immediate military power, violent solutions is set free by those in power. The very ones who stand the most to lose by letting him free, the true insurrectionist goes free. The true murderer, the true threat, immediate political threat goes free. But the one who says, lay down your weapons, lay down your life, lay down your agenda, lay down your demands, is crucified. It's tragic, it's unjust, it's cruel and unusual punishment, but it's the gospel. Barabbas is significant in the gospel account chiefly because he is a living embodiment of a sinner spared from condemnation. Because Jesus took his place on the cross. Because this is true, in a literal sense, Barabbas is a flesh and blood symbol for everyone who finds salvation in Jesus. 
in a true and literal sense, he could say, Christ died for me. He could say that because Jesus literally carried his cross up the hill. He may be the very first person to whom it might have occurred to make a confession like that, that Jesus took my place, that he died for me, that he carried my sins, that he took on my punishment. Maybe the first person that it occurred to literally to think and make a confession like that because it had just happened to him personally. During those dark hours, while the crucifixion drama was playing out, while the disciples were confused and scattered, while even those closest to Jesus wondered at the meaning of it all, Barabbas must have known, even in a rudimentary way, the principle that lies at the very heart of the gospel. Jesus had taken his place on the cross. It was Barabbas' cross he carried up the hill to death. He bore the condemnation that was due Barabbas, and he made it possible for Barabbas, the murderer, the sinner, to go free. He goes free, and Jesus takes his sentence on himself. He literally changed places with him at the behest of a weak-willed Roman emperor and bloodthirsty multitudes. Frederick Buechner, who comments on this verse, said, Pilate told the people that they could spare the life of either a murderer named Barabbas or Jesus of Nazareth, and they chose Barabbas. Given the same choice, Jesus, of course, would have chosen to spare Barabbas too. And that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly why we have to come to Jesus all in or nothing. We have to come rushing to him to give him our lives, all of it, or we need to reject him out of hand and say, no, thank you. Jesus says, bring all of you to him and be prepared to be cut in two, cut to the quick. It's the only way. Hosanna or crucify him. Those are the two choices that each of us have this morning, whether we're looking in from the inside from the outside, trying to figure out if we can call ourselves a Christian, if this all makes sense, that's our choice. Or if we've been in this thing for 30 years and we know Jesus, that's our choice again. Hosanna or crucify him. Do you give him all of your life or nothing of your life? But friends, the motivation is not coercion. It's not control. It's not power. It's, do, it's not do this or I'll get you. Do this or God will be angry. It's because Jesus says all or nothing towards you, and he chooses all. He's all in. He says, I will go to any length to have you. Jesus is all in for you, my life for yours. Crucify me, not them. He holds nothing back. He carries your cross up the hill. He dies on your cross for your sentence, so that it can be wiped away and erased forever. Hosanna or crucify him, all in or nothing, but the motivation is not do it or else, it's do it because I have done it for you. Jesus carries your cross up the hill so that you don't have to carry it anymore. You can be set free and liberated and live forever, and you don't have to deal in the area of power politics anymore. 
You can give up your power and it will be the most liberating, freeing thing that you can imagine. First, come to Jesus. Let him carry your sin, carry your cross, and set you free forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to worship, to be reconnected with you, to be reconnected with what makes us truly human. Would you set us free again? Would you set us free to be the most human that we can possibly be, and that is in worship of you and giving ourselves completely and fully to you? Lord, I pray wherever we're coming from this morning, whether we still have big, grand questions about whether this all makes sense or whether we're very sure that it does, would you unsettle us as we come to you because encountering you is unsettling and yet liberating? And would that be true today and as we continue to worship? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.